for December 30th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 600. This is how you make up nonsense. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, uh, we're like your smart, funny friends, but really we're like, uh, we're like sort of a, a crazy jester cadre, you know, or, uh, I don't know, we'll workshop that name, but, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're here together, subjecting it, subjecting it to a, a level of scrutiny. We're here gazing into the navel so long that it, it gazes back into us. We're here overthinking it for our 600th regular episode of the overthinking it podcast welcome uh very much my good friends and podcasters my good friend peter fenzel hello pete how are you you know matt i'm uh, i don't know about you but i'm feeling 22 (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure p fens uh, oh yeah, definitely. We got Mark Lee here. How are you, Mark? Parting like it's 2019. That absolutely does not have uh, any ring to it at all. Like 1999. So Prince, uh, you you came up with a good turn of phrase there. Good on you. And uh, and I'm I'm Matt Rather. I'm I'm here to put it in your ear till they tell us to go home. Let's uh, let's let's keep this podcast train going. It's uh, it's a pleasure to do this show with you guys every week. Sometimes uh, I, I take every occasion to wax sentimental and uh you know get a little bit misty-eyed about um how how much i enjoy it and what a cool thing it is that i think uh it is to do the show with you guys and how cool that there are so many people who seem to like to listen to us does literally dozens around the local region who like to uh to listen to the thing we do so um what we're gonna do uh we had our you know our fact checking and research departments hard at work on this and for the next six hours we are going to count down the 1000 greatest pop culture moments of (laughs) the past decade as we as we turn into uh 2020 this week um and if you are one of the if you are a decade truther you know uh and you you realize that the decade doesn't start till 2021 just get over yourself right like this is the changing of the tense place and and that uh it it really what it means is that the the novelty eyeglasses that are passed out on new year's eve have to change in some fundamental way have to be redesigned and that is the most profound thing that can happen um every 10 years and and so that's that if if for no other reason than that the we're we're gonna call it the uh we're gonna call it the start of the the new decade now what we decided to do um because we don't really have the capacity to evaluate or the research staff to evaluate uh you know a top 10 anything of the of the past decade in any kind of detail we decided to go back and look at the past decade of of overthinking it and to pick um, to pick some articles, uh, remember when overthinking it wrote articles guys, brief, brief digression. Remember when we were a blog, 
<laughs> Remember blogs? <laughs> Remember blog? Yeah, blogs were a thing at the beginning of this decade, and now they aren't. And that is the most consequential thing that has happened in the last moment. One thousand. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher replaces Charlie Sheen on Two and a Half Men. After hashtag winning in Tiger Blood, take the country by storm. <laughs> Film star Charlie Sheen, son of the president, abandons the top-rated sitcom in the country involuntarily and is replaced by Ashton Kutcher, the man who cuckolded Bruce Willis. Uh, We all watched the show as much as we did when Ashton joined it, wondering if it was some sort of prank. But it turned out it was merely an act of genius. Number 999, Ashton Kutcher co-hosts with Kelly Rimpa as a guest after the departure of Regis Philbin. Sorry, the 999 through 875 are all Ashton Kutcher. (laughs) The whole section on his Steve Jobs movie. It's pretty impressive. It was really, I mean, it was really Ashton's decade. We were just, we happened to be living in it. Um so we're uh, we're going to go back to some articles, some things we wrote, and you know, uh, in a couple of cases, things that were predictive or that seemed to mark changes in the way we were looking at uh, the way we were looking at culture, the way we were looking at the world, um, and see how they see how they have held up over the course of ten uh, ten years. And this will give us a pretext to talk about the decade and to um, you know to sort of consider what we got. Why Right, what we got wrong, um, whether we were, you know, whether we were onto something, and and what uh, what the heck happened over the course of the last ten years, during all of which we have been making a weekly podcast. That's astonishing to me. All right, let's uh, let's dive in. Eight hundred and forty nine. Open Gangnam Style. Eight hundred and forty eight. The the um, Britney goes crazy. No, that was last decade. Eight hundred and forty seven. Jupiter Ascendant. (laughs) Was that that was the name of it? Right, Jupiter Ascendant. Oh yeah, Jupiter Jupiter Ascending. Ascending. Um, With with Eddie Eddie Greenmain's amazing performance, the best performance of the decade. But isn't it in which which he alternates between whispering and screaming? By the way, by the way, spoiler number one is Magic Mike Double (laughs) XL. I'm pretty sure. So I got to double check what year that came out. <laughs> well, so this is this is really a game of association. So you went from Ashton Kutcher to to Mila Kunis to Channing Tatum. There, exactly. Really. See, now you're following me. This is how you make up nonsense. Is you combine <laughs> patterns, right? Uh, like, like for example, a lot of people don't know that Magic Mike Double XL is actually based on a previous film called uh, Magic Mike X. Double XL is not a valid road. Like X X V I I Let's uh no no number eight hundred and forty six Doritos asks fans to send in a Super Bowl ad. <laughs> Um, that's nice. I, hey, remember what, that time Oreo made a joke on Twitter about there being a blackout? I remember that. I, that was a big deal for like a minute and a half. Uh, do you guys not remember that? Was that the Super Bowl or was that a uh, remember the black the blackout at the Super Bowl? Yes, that was actually kind of interesting. That probably ranks around six hundred and seventy five. <laughs> 
Let's, yeah, as as things come up, we can just rate them on a zero to one thousand scale of where we think they would fall in the the list of most important uh, most important. Um, uh, messages of the decade. Okay, so we might read a little bit from uh, we might read a little bit from the uh, uh, from the articles that that we're quoting. Um, we might uh, just dive in and, and describe them and talk. But let's uh, let's dive in and do it. Mark, will you start us talking out uh, talking about uh, some articles from Overthinking It over the past ten years? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Thanks, Mark. I'm going to take us back to October of 2010. I know, a long time ago, right? Um, A a much simpler time uh, before Disney bought Lucasfilm and then cranked out three, frankly, more than three, uh, some mediocre Star Wars movies uh, in the latter half of the decade. So we wrote something called, um, uh, it was a think tank. Remember the think tank, guys? Um, What do do stormtroopers think of Vader? Um, This is, of course, being a uh, speculation about uh, the events in the original trilogy and how the stormtroopers, the rank and file of the Empire, perceive of Darth Vader, who is a mystical wizard and crazy and erratic, all these great things, right? We as a launching point for this, we started off with the the, the scene from Episode Four: A New Hope, where the doors open in the hangar, and all these stormtroopers who are just standing around, you know, shooting the breeze about the latest speeder model. Uh, they see their boss having a laser sword fight with an old wizard, and it's like, what the crap? Um, and Pete, you came up with this great sequence here. Um, I'll just start off with this uh, as a way of kind of looking back at the decade um, and all the things that have changed in unexpected ways. Um, you create up with this great sequence um, speculating that uh, Vader is analogous to, get this, right, a, a, a crazy right-wing birther who hangs out at the American Heritage Institute. <laughs> that, like, the mainline conservatives analogous to the regular military and political establishment of the empire need this crazy dude at the fringes um, because he has this power um, and, you know, just serves a, a sort of a necessary purpose. And I'm just going to do a little bit of a dramatic reading um, between General Tag and Darth Vader. Um, that kind of sums us up here. <clears throat> it's General actually Grand Moff Tarkin, right? It starts with a ta- Tarkin, but Tag. Uh, tag jumps oh, you're going to go right yeah. to Tag. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Tag, you know, remember, is the one who's forced choked by Vader. Okay, okay, so he says, some of us here are trying to run a campaign. You're an embarrassment. Your allegiance to those crazy websites will be your undoing. <sighs> you do not understand the power of the dark side. <laughs> Show me the birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, that's something you wrote. That's something you came yeah, up with. That's correct. And that was that was in 2010, mm-hmm. right? And then um, a few years after that, um, the predominant, one of the most predominant uh, espousers of the birth theory, Donald Trump, uh, announced his candidacy for president. And then a year after that, he won the presidency. Mm-hmm. That happened, right? That that all that happened in the last decade. Yeah, I'm um, sorry that I wrote the article, or it wouldn't have happened. I'm sure that's. How it works, right? It's a butterfly effect, which was an Ashton Kutcher movie, number 896. Uh, actually, that might have been the previous decade. I have to double check that. So, yeah. Now, an honest, an honest question for you. like, Looking back at that, do you feel like that was something where you somehow underestimated um, the, the power of the dark side of the force? Well, first of all, the butterfly, <laughs> the effect, the butterfly effect was in 2004, so I'm way off on that. It yeah. doesn't belong anywhere near this decade. No, I feel like I, I handled something, right? I, I don't know. I mean, what I would say is that if there's if there's a is there's an insight that 
this particular article had that I didn't realize that it had at the time going by sort of death of the death of the author, you know, theory in that like my intention in writing the article isn't really what the article ended up meaning is that uh, these the sort of bureaucrats and functionaries and technocrats of the empire who see themselves as really in charge are boring. Uh, and, um, and Darth Vader, even though he's, you know, a nutball, uh, I mean, when you think about Darth Vader in, in Star Wars, and, and this sort of goes back to the theory we discussed last week of the Emperor is an evil wizard, and the Empire, the founding concept behind the Empire is how can you delude yourself into thinking that the Emperor isn't an evil wizard, right? Like that, uh, what what is it that you think he's actually doing? Uh, and by evil, I mean the Emperor just sort of takes glee and destruction around him, and then Darth Vader has kind of pledged himself to him more than anybody, right? And and that's I'm not saying necessarily that Donald Trump is Darth Vader, but what I am saying is that there that enthusiasm counts for a lot <laughs> and um, and that uh, and that being correct is not its own defense. Uh, and, you know, you could probably argue that in a lot of policy debates, uh, the positions of various political candidates that have not really been as well grounded uh, have have, you know, been more resonant or more effective partly because, uh, you know, functionaries are boring. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's just something exciting about throwing off the restrictions of the kinds of conversations that have to happen in really bureaucratic circles. But but I will also say that, like, you know, if you want to destroy, don't pick a bureaucrat, pick a destroyer. It's kind of what I guess. Right. It's like it's sort of like uh, you could even go back to Ghostbusters and think like, well, when they choose the state puff marshal man as the destroyer, they pick him because they can't imagine him as a destroyer, but he becomes a destroyer anyway. So I don't know. I, I'm kind of rambling here, but and did I underestimate the power of the dark side? Like maybe in this case, I no, guess. I mean, well, that's what you just talked through there. I yeah. think you hit the nail right on the head. Yeah. In 2010 is what you did. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, you know, as I always say, the, the deepest, darkest secret of overthinking it is that we're right a lot of the time. <laughs> Not all the time. But a lot of the time. And yeah, yeah, it's just like these relationships between people in power. Some people, you know, they, they get into power in different ways. And then once they arrive in power, their discourses of power are so different from each other that there is a comical collision. Sometimes yeah. it involves, you know, selfies with a taco salad on Cinco de Mayo or whatever. And mm. Other other sort of grand insights. Mm. So. Other, other, other times it involves um, spraying soda all over each other. Um, oh, yeah. It's a little teaser, something we're going to mention <laughs> later on. Okay, the other thing I wanted to uh, do in bringing up this article is, of course, take my opportunity uh, to put in some shots on Rise of Skywalker because I missed the podcast last week and I thought that movie was kind of a hot mess. Uh, not kind of a hot mess, a real hot mess. It was disappointing in, in many, many different ways. And, um, you know, we don't, let's not do that podcast over again. Um, but I did want to just pause for a moment and just like you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, right? Like what we had in 2010. Um, primarily with the original trilogy, but in retrospect, much more uh, uh, um, as becoming more clear, the, the prequel trilogy as well was like a pretty simple political story, right? Around you know you had this evil empire, oh, and how did the empire get there? Well, you had this republic, and it was corrupted from within. Um, not a sophisticated plot at all, and you know, and, and as we've talked about Star Wars, it's not so dependent on its political plot. That's like a lot of other stuff going on, but it was not only effective in um, you know, providing a scaffolding for the main Skywalker saga and the good and evil battles and stuff like that uh, that, we, that we know and love, um, it was also effective at creating a, uh, enough of an open space with a simplicity uh, for our imaginations to take hold, 
Right. And um, I, I know we talked about this, right? Like um, one of the powers of these types of stories is that it sets our imagination on fire and allows us to, uh, all sorts of play. Right. And as we're young, it's about the action figures and, the, you know, the adventures of Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and so on and so forth. And as we get older, um, the play becomes sort of an intellectual play around um, what the Empire was like what its military and political structures were like and, you know, drawing upon the Roman empire, uh, the Nazis and other totalitarian regimes, uh, not to say that the Roman empire was totalitarian. It was not possible. And, and that didn't anyway, um, you know, it allowed us to just like toy with these ideas and take them in interesting ways. Um, now fast forward to 2000 and what, 15, 2019 with the sequel trilogy, force awakens, uh, last Sky- last Jedi and rise of Skywalker. And with the first order that became the final order and that, uh, mess that, uh, you know, this hodgepodge of, poorly thought up ideas about this, you know, fringes of the empire that's kind of come out of nowhere and they sort of take over, but you don't really see it actually happening. And, and then there's this like final Sith empire that's you know, hidden in the ice for all these, all these decades. And this like undead empire emperor comes back. It doesn't allow for that same sort of speculation um, because it is, uh, it is like neither simple nor complicated. <laughs> it's just a mess. It's like full of nonsense. Um, and, uh, it's disappointing. Um, so yeah, that was my, uh, um, uh, excuse to, uh, criticize rise of Skywalker. Cause I didn't get to do it with you guys last week. Um, the empire was great. Long live the empire is what I'm saying. Excellent. Moment 550, the Criminal Minds remake in South Korea that ran from July 26, 2017 to September 28, 2017. If you love Criminal Minds but didn't know that the show was remade with a South Korean cast, you're in for a treat. And one of the top events of the decade was this translation, Mandy Patinkin Free, of one of the great franchises of the previous two decades. Uh, I'm sorry that Rise of Skywalker broke your heart so much, Mark. I, I, <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it. But... Mandy, Mandy Patinkin's departure from Criminal Minds broke my heart. Actually, right? that was probably – that. did that happen this decade? Because that's probably actually worth talking about, right? Like – not that not that Rise of Skywalker isn't, but that all those Ashton Kutcher, like the straight to Netflix Ashton Kutcher show uh, that came out in 2016, probably isn't. But uh, when did that happen? Was that this decade or the previous decade? Netflix originals are all this decade. No, no, no. I mean, when did Mandy Patinkin leave Criminal Minds? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think it was in year two or three of Criminal Minds. He didn't understand that the the subject of the show would be disturbing violence directed, disturbing sexual violence more often than not directed at nubile young women. Um, right. He 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 claims not to have understood that. It seems it seems yeah. a little. He thought it was going to be like assassins. Right. It's just going to be music and and meditation on uh, on the minds of criminals. Right. Everybody's got a right to be happy. It's the (laughs) the main subject of assassin subject in the musical sense. It's the main theme of assassins. Mm. Um, Yeah. Wow. Mandy Patinkin. Let's let's just do let's do an hour on Mandy Patinkin. (laughs) You know. Sorry, Mark. I jumped way off base. I, did was there? Do you have closing thoughts on sort of Star Wars that you wanted to to flesh out? I just it sort of feels like everything has been said, but I know that's never true. Um, I've read enough Noam Chomsky to know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to say that, like you know, everyone's relationship to Star Wars is different. Um, 
uh, you know, the, the amount of good that it has put into the world is vast and a handful of disappointing movies at the tail end of this decade, you know, won't erase mm-hmm. all of that. So like, you know, am I consumed with hatred and am I collapsing, um, you know, hurtling towards the dark side of the force? Uh, maybe a little bit, right? I'm looking at my fingernails here. Uh, seen better days, uh, but I'm doing all right. Me and Star Wars are doing OK. OK, that's good. They survived the decade then. Mm, indeed. Enough, your fingernails, you mean? Your fingernails survived the decade to, to, to varying degrees, Matt. Let's not let's not let's, let's talk about something. Else. Well, I guess I mean, Please. like what what makes Star Wars uh, what makes Star Wars ever thinkable? There's a sort of high low dichotomy, right? Like uh, George yeah. Lucas was supposed to be a sort of avant garde, sort of artsy filmmaker, right? Like American Graffiti and THX, whatever, whatever, and. Uh, all, you know, like the 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 idea of these these films, I don't know. There, there was something um, there was something high minded about it in that, like at, at least in that it was a a sort of high. It was a high budget retread of the you know pulpy film serials of of his youth, and that's a you know interesting kind of pathetic move then there was all the kind of hero's journey mumbo jumbo that was put on it and then you know it became clear it was definitely i mean it was definitely pete like you you had an insight uh last week that i thought was really good about star wars which was that like in the initial star wars film it's like this is a you know a highly sort of mechanized society hierarchical militaristic society that happens to employ space wizards tangentially Right. And then Mm -hmm. and then but it it turns out that what George Lucas wanted was to tell a story about space wizards um, all along, uh, much in the same way that George R. R. Martin wants to tell the story about zombies, you know, and that that uh, all the the rest of it really does matter um, compared with the zombies. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we get both space wizards and space zombies in. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker, and for that reason, it is the most successful of all the Star Wars franchise uh, entertainment properties, television, film, you know, books, extended universe, all all sorts. I don't know. Do you feel like there's something about Star Wars uh, that makes it especially um, overthinkable for us, or did it just did this happen to be the decade where? Uh, the kind of the the mania for intellectual property for for you know IP that you could flog and do world building and and franchise building um, coincided with the uh, the Star Wars universe, which was already pretty extensively built out at that point. Well, it's worth noting that. Star Wars is participatory because people played with it so much, like the toys and stuff. I mean, when I think about properties where people played with the toys when we were young, Star Wars, Transformers, My Little Pony, uh, He-Man has come around in terms of the She-Ra remake, right? Um, Mm. There's some. I think that maybe people have a personal attachment to stories that they've acted out that might be different from just stories that they've watched. And so, if you've played with dolls or figures, you've acted out the stories yourself. So you probably have a pretty strong connection. In some level, to what they are about and what's going on, um, 
And that might be why people were so vocal about it. And so, but I mean, the other thing about Star Wars is it just doesn't fully explain itself, which might be the thing that makes it most overthinkable. Even when it's talking about the midichlorians, it's not entirely satisfactory, right? Like, there's something about Star Wars that is left to the imagination. And when you fill that gap in, then, you know, you want to defend your version of it from other versions, especially if it's been around for 20, 30 years. Uh, and you just don't realize that you never told anybody about it. Moment number 475 is the 2015 divorce of country titans, Blake Shelton and Miranda Lambert. Blake Shelton would subsequently be named People's Sexiest Man Alive in the most controversial choice in the history of the magazine, reflecting a failure by the magazine to identify the meaning of sexiness or manhood, according to Miranda Lambert partisan Peter Fenzel, who very firmly takes her side in the divorce because uh, he likes Little Red Wagon a lot. Okay, sorry. Uh, what are, what are we talk- We're talking about more stuff that happened in the decade, more stuff about Star Wars. I All think right. we have other articles that we wanted I'm gonna to look do my, uh, I'm going to do my article now. Okay. I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote an, uh, an article on August 9th, 2010. Actually, coincidentally, the articles that we picked are all from 2010. So from mm-hmm. the, the beginning of the decade. I don't want to hear it, truthers. Decade truthers. The beginning of the decade. Um, the googly eyes, the googly eyes 2009 sunglasses were replaced in, uh, in 2010. And, and that was significant. Um, I wrote an article called Toward a Theory of Television Snackability, where I basically outlined, I theorized the, the, um, the concept of binge watching before I think that term was in general circulation. Um, and I connected it, uh, to changes in the technology of television from, you know, uh, live TV, uh, to you know, which created a sort of ultimate atmosphere of scarcity, like something could happen once because it was live. To uh, traditional "quote unquote" net- network television, um, which is, of course, net- the network television of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tradition. Tradition. The uh, and then to uh, DVD box sets, to to I guess Betamax. Um, you know, to video cassette recorders, DVD box sets, and uh, and through to streaming, um, you know, with the kind of the changing business model as we move from a business model predicated on scarcity to a business model predicated on abundance from live television through to to streaming, um, and then sort of creative outlets, the the kind of the creative changes that go into. Uh, uh, making something snackable. I think probably the most controversial thing that I said in that article is that the snackability, the bin, what we now call the binge ability of a television show, uh, inheres in, is an intrinsic quality of the show. Um, and I tried to, uh, I tried to identify a couple of qualities that made something bingeable. And, and a few of the things I said were, you know, uh, light serialization, at least light serialization, um, and, uh, a sort of fantasy, a sort of transporting fantasy aspect. Um, now, uh, in the comments, like a lot of, a lot of things, it sort of, it, it. Uh, devolved a little bit. Maybe I had failed to really articulate my case very well, but or maybe I had just erred in kind of giving specific examples. I said, maybe this was the most controversial thing I said, that The Wire was not a 
bingeable show. Um, I, th- I, and, and I, I sort of stand by that. I mean, it's good. It's highly serialized, but it was not, uh, it, it doesn't have a single point of identification, um, which was one of the things that I suggested really helped, uh, in bingeability. And it didn't, it was sociological rather than fantastical. Um, and everyone wanted to, to argue with me about like, well, I watched the wire all, I watched season three of the wire all in one sitting. It's like, okay, okay. Like, you know, you, you get it, but you're, you're missing the larger point, which is how the economics, um, how the economics affect the, the artistic quality of the, of the thing. Um, that we're, that we're seeing, um, not uh, just I, I I imported the word snackability for what it's worth. Oh, other other people thought that snackability was was trivializing or implied sort of light fare, short sessions of of um, of eating rather than the binge eating. I I got the word snackability from the food industry, where uh, snackability is an inherent quality of certain snack foods that are engineered to be, to kind of, to engender the automatic bowl, hand bowl to mouth movement. Like, uh, I, I, I would say that like nutter butters to me are like a highly snackable food. And there's something, something about them, something about the way they're lined up in rows, the way they, um, you know, the kind of the, the shape of them, the highly sort of finger friendly shape of, of a nutter butter peanut shaped cookie, um, the tooth pack, which is like a real word, uh, the way they, you know, when you chew them, the kind of the, the, uh, gooey bolus they make in your mouth. Um, and, uh, uh, and then the kind of the taste, the kind of the not overly sweet, slightly salty taste, right? Like, so highly snackable food. I've, I've since learned also that that term in the food industry is called session ability, the ability to, 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 um, transform eating a cookie into a session of eating, right? Like where it becomes an event that I am eating these nutter butters, uh, here now. And that actually is more, uh, probably a more apt term for what we now call binge watching, which is an ugly term that, that I don't like, but the sort of session ability, the idea of like, Hey, I'm going to check out a, a, uh, an old episode of the good wife, you know, on, uh, on streaming, the, uh, transforming from that to, um, Hey, watching four hours of the good wife in a night is just a thing we do now. Um, that's how, uh, that's how it goes. Anyway, uh, sorry to go on so long, but a couple thoughts, a, a couple thoughts about, about that and, and coming up with the idea of binge watching, uh, before really I was aware of it being talked about, you know, um, the the uh so someone in the comments points out a uh, an urban dictionary word of the day um from you know from that day in 2010 uh power disking which is not a sex act it actually is described as watching several episodes of a TV show in a row usually from a DVD box set done over several evenings or a marathon weekend. Um, the, the example, I missed the first three seasons of Mad Men, so I spent this past two weekends power disking all the episodes in order to be up to date for the premiere of season four later, later this month. 
power disking. That one mm-hmm. did not catch on. Anyway, thoughts about <laughs> binge watching, about towards the theory of television well, snackability or anything? Yeah, I'll, I'll, first I'll give you credit, Matt, for being ahead of the time, and then uh, uh, maybe criticize the theory a little bit in, in retrospect. I was a freaking um, prophet, Mark. <laughs> I am. I'm your you, god you now. You're 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 not not a prophet, Matt. Okay. Um, uh, speaking of power disking, um, the Portlandia sketch where they, I guess you could say, power disc through Battlestar Galactica was from late 2011. So, Matt, you beat that to the punch by uh, at least a year. Um, the other thing, important event along these lines, is the premiere of House of Cards in, on in Netflix, right? Um, which dropped, uh, like, what, an entire season, 13 episodes all at once. I think an unprecedented act at the time. Uh, that was 2013. Um so both of those certainly uh, you know, snackable uh, in all the ways as you just described. Um, but Friends, can we talk about Friends for a second? Mm-hmm. Right? Did that become that, that it is? It, it is. Uh, I, I guess you could say it is fantastical in the way you described Matt, but it is um, not at all. Well, this is extremely lightly serialized um, with the uh, Ross and Rachel. Uh, and other romantic through lines going through. I don't think quite to the level that that you had in mind, um, and yet somehow. It became bingeable or snackable or sessionable after the fact. Um, wh- wh- how does Friends then, um, which I believe is the most streamed uh, show on television at, at this time? I think The Office um, might be above Friends, mm, but they're yeah, close. Yeah. Or rather, uh, if they're not close, they're not. Nothing else is close to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Matt, how does Friends fit into your theory? Or I mean, Friends was Friends was lightly serialized, right? There was a. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Ross and Rachel plot that went the whole the whole way, and it's it's definitely fantastical. It's a it's a fantasy of better real estate, but uh, or you know of a sort of kinder, simpler time when you when you don't um, have any responsibilities, or you know of having friends or something. If if uh, you were particularly lonely, right? Like that that uh, it it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a sort of gritty post Sopranos, you know, Shakespearean anti-hero, uh, in order to be highly snackable. I would, I would say that, you know, friends are Oreo cookies, right? They are like perfectly round, you know, delicious, you know, crunchy, crunchy on the outside, gooey and creamy on the inside. Just, just, just perfectly non-nutritive, um, highly engineered taste objects, uh, meant to, you know, go down, meant to go down smooth. And as as such, they are, it it seems like it would be sort of extremely sessionable. I mean, okay. So contempt aside, (laughs) um, the, 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 there's, I think there's something to be said for if you go through, so if you go to by Netflix, Netflix will tell you who the top what the top shows on Netflix are, but they'll only include their own shows. They'll exclude any of the other shows, right? So if you go back to the data from 2018, they'll say the top show, Stranger Things, the number two show is Orange is the New Black, and all this other stuff. But if you go by Nielsen, it'll say what is I have the list here, and this was published in April of 2019, about 2018, right? The Office, Friends, Grey's Anatomy, NCIS, Criminal Minds. The American version, not the South Korea version, unfortunately. Orange is the New Black, Shameless, Supernatural, Parks and Rec, and Ozark. Uh, which and, it, and this is this is as of 2018. So so um, this data, and so that's not just a couple. It's not just it's not just Friends, right? It's not just that it's pabulum, right? It's like oh, it's nice, right? It's it's that 
shows that are engineered for television time slots have constraints on the rhythm and the pacing and the desire to keep people watching on an ongoing basis that was kind of time tested and had to pass muster in an environment where if people turned away, it was bad. And if I want to compare that to a show like, say, The OA, which is event number two of the decade because it was so great. (laughs) Everyone loved The OA so much. But here's the thing. Some things about The OA, right? Um and, and I want to I want to back Matt up on a little bit on this and 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 continue to kind of flesh out this this problematized idea of binge watching and the wire versus snackability and like the office and friends the OA the different episodes are all different lengths right they have a lot of different tonal things going on uh, the pacing is all over the place in terms now again I'm saying that as if it's a negative thing it's not necessarily a negative thing I think a lot of people uh, let me rephrase I think a non-trivial number of people appreciated the OA's ability or or desire to kind of shrug off the constraints of what you would normally identify as an entertaining television, right? And like breaking molds, as it were, being different and doing things like having, oh, this episode's only half an hour. This episode is almost an hour long. Oh, this episode, they just sit in a box for the whole time and talk nonsense. Um, again, I shouldn't be so mean, but I mean, this episode, we talk about a guy doing flips on the roof and, uh, but but it's sort of like, That's the big that's the big hook. Right. This there's this the event show. Uh, There's there's sort of a intersectional phenomenon to binge watching, which is uh, share watching. Right. The idea that you are watching shows that other people are watching and talking about on social media at the same time. And they and the. The 2010s was sort of a decade of the ascendancy and the sort of peak and then the sort of explosion of social television watching because it was like, oh, we all we're, everyone's talking about girls. No, not a lot of people are actually watching it, but so many people are talking about it. that The show is this like huge deal. Mad and every Men. week there's, you know, Mad Men is exactly is another is, is classic. Mad Men is probably the definitive show of this this era where it's like, what is Mad Men going to do? The tastemakers, the, the fashion makers, you know, like the, the people wearing men are wearing skinny suits or whatever, like, uh, you know, the whole the whole like sort of the culture influence cycle is kind of built around what's happening and what's going on with the show. I don't think Mad Men is a particularly comforting show to watch for long periods of time, nor in its degree to which it is exciting, thrilling or challenging. Do I think Mad Men leaves you unfatigued? Right. I think I think that as as much as people binge watch The Wire, the first few episodes of The Wire are are a barrier to get into it. In fact, I would say the first couple episodes of every season of The Wire are pretty slow. It's sort of the opposite of a Netflix original series where like episodes six through eight are all going to be like, you know, treading water because they they did the hook at the beginning. And now they have to kind of flesh out the rest of the season before the end. Uh, so that's a, the the John Parrish article about that which i think aged pretty well but it's like for the wire it's like the first few episodes are really slow and then it really picks up steam by the time you get to the end and so by the time you get to the end you feel like enraptured and 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 enwrapped attention and horrified and thrilled but like getting into it is tough and there's a reason that it wasn't that popular when it was on tv and, and so in that sense it kind of feels like the essential snackability of the show is less than the degree to which it is binge watched because the social sharing aspect of the show is so great. People watch the wire because other people watch the wire. People don't watch the office because other people watch the office. People watch the office because the office is super watchable. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it maybe is some part of it, but not, not really right. Like um, there's like a sense of social belonging, but it's not like, Oh man, what's going to happen on the office next week. 
that kind of thing. It's 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 a different sort of and this sort of hit its baroque climax with the final season of Game of Thrones, where everybody hanged on every word of a show that made no sense uh, anymore. Um, it's just sort of a shadow of its its former serialized self. But anyway, I, I'm I'm digressing and editorializing too much. But I do want to posit, Matt, that you are onto something, and that the fact that the wire doesn't stand up to your categorization of snackability points to the idea that like more research is needed and we need to further understand why it is that people watch these things. House of Cards is not a particularly snackable show at times. I think it gets a little bit grindy. Um, not particularly, you don't feel at home watching it like you do watching Law and Order. Uh, right. Um, so question for you. I don't, do, I mean, do you guys go back and rewatch House of Cards after you watched it the first time? No. Right. Like I sure didn't. Right. No. Like it's and again, it's great and it's well, awesome and it was a big event, but it's not like The Office. Whereas I would watch uh, I would watch ER for years. I would just put ER in the background for, you know, yeah. and you could just put it on a loop, especially those first right. few years of it. Like while I did light chores or something like that, you know, like while I did housework, the, the there's no no end to my appetite for for that that uh for george clooney that that delicious nutter butter <laughs> right and i would even posit that ozark which i've talked about so many times is a bit more snackable than some other of its pure shows because it's kind of less tight in certain ways and, and feels a little more repetitive and it's like okay i'm watching a familiar thing um although critical role that i've been tearing through i'm on like episode 97 and they reach like three to four hours long it's crazy um those people who've fallen into the critical role rabbit hole of watching like stream dungeons and dragons that just goes on forever and ever and ever and there's just buckets and buckets and buckets of it um there there definitely are other forms of entertainment that i think you could matrix along this snackability frontier yeah um yeah for sure maybe uh maybe we'll do that in our next overthinking it article (laughs) <laughs> you know, Pete, earlier I in the, was, yeah, Sorry? I thought it was going to be about people reaching their hands out in Rise of Skywalker because nobody else wanted to talk about that aspect of it on the podcast. <laughs> we never had time. Let's uh, let's let's uh, move on. Early, earlier in the podcast, Pete, I, I posited that, that you, me, and Mark are as kind of crazy jester cadre. I, I think we need to workshop that a little bit. Any, any idea what a catchier name for that sort of gathering would be. <laughs> so are you saying we are something of a posse of insane clowns? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> oh, I like it. You're almost mm. there. <laughs> <laughs> a clown posse of the insane. Nailed it. Um, we're talking about insane clown posse, right? That's what we're talking about? Yeah, that's. Um, I, I hope so. Let's let's uh, let's talk about uh, towards a juggalo theory of value, which is a, a Fenzel article from uh, 2010. Excellent. OK, so this is an article that I wrote in 2010 that was focusing on the developing trend and this sort of at the time uh, mystifying popularity of uh, the the insane clown posse. Right. So so uh, I'm, I'm going to it's for a little bit of context. Right. Um, the song Hocus Pocus, which I think is the biggest hit, one of the biggest hits of the Insane Clown Posse, came out in uh, in 1997 uh, off of the album The Great Malenko. And so, like, for many of us, this was kind of when the Insane Clown Posse were a thing, it, way, way, way back in the late 80s. Uh, and I want to see if it's uh, – let's see what else was on the Billboard charts in late 1997 along with, like, Hocus Pocus – by the insane clown posse. Um, I mean, what, like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like R and B 
not a lot of other like crazy hardcore rap and whatnot. Ninety eight degrees, Bone Thugs in Harmony, which ironically still uh, still tours with it. And yet, right when I think about like Jewel, right? So like so okay, uh, there's a point for me fleshing this out, right? So consider Jewel versus the Insane Clown Posse, right? And think about them. They're both level of popularity. Oh, I, think, when- I think Jewel would win in Jewel versus the Insane Clown Posse because <laughs> she's, you know, that she doesn't have numbers on her side, but she's like Alaskan. She's got she's good with a hunting knife, you know. Uh, I think a whole uh, she's got a whole. Oh, sorry, you didn't mean in a literal fight. No. So, so here's where we get into the article, right? The idea is that. When the Insane Clown Posse were something of a crossover act that were, I think, considered to be kind of like something you might see on MTV, right? Back in the day, somebody like Jewel was tremendously more popular than them, sold many, 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 many more albums than them. And yet here we are, you know, 22 years later, and I can talk about Juggalos as a thing that has currency, Right. Like there has been meaningful news on a national level involving the insane clown posse within the last three years. Whereas like when was the last time you heard anything about Jewel? She's probably a judge on one of those TV shows like The Voice or something. Right. Like which is fine. But like but like, you know, the idea that kind of uh, rampant fandom for Jewel is and people will go see her concerts. And I'm sure she has a lot of people who still like her. Uh, but but there's been something there was something that happened with the insane clown posse that has brought us to a different point. And when I talk about in the article toward a juggalo theory of value is about how the insane clown posse were one of the very early adopter fan communities of online organization of kind of devolved cells. Right. The idea that you would have different groups of insane clown posse fans who would socialize among themselves and use the Internet. Uh, you know, we're talking in the 90s to organize their meetings. And, and this was something and the, the sort of hypothesis or conjecture is that this is something of a necessity because the fans consider themselves to be outcast. They have a pretty broad geographical swath, including large areas of the Midwest uh, where people might live really far apart from each other and might not have difficulty congregating otherwise without the use of the internet. Right. And there's this whole idea of like, okay, well, we all wear the face makeup uh, and we dress up like the insane clown posse and whatnot. Uh, we, we participate in this sort of shared juggalo identity. Right. And so, okay, while the insane clown posse is not making more billboard number 53 hits, right? Or maybe they are. For all I know, they're number one this week after Mariah Carey because the billboard charts are meaningless and everything. But but what I really mean is like the, the sort of era of producing tons and tons and tons of best-selling albums from one group are long past for the insane clown posse. And instead, over the course of many years, they they cultivated an online fan base. And the fan base was kind of self-organized and uh, and was resilient and had a very strong sense of its own identity. And as such, going into 2010, you know, decade three of the insane clown posse, uh, the juggalos seemed to be on the ascent. Right. The the gathering of the juggalos had an attendance in 2010 of 20,000 people, which turned out to be a long term peak. It turned out that the gathering of the juggalos wasn't going to necessarily be this thing that was going to keep growing forever until it encompassed the entirety of the southern half of Illinois. Uh, you know, it had to move locations. There was that issue with Tila Tequila, right, where where people were really nasty to her. Uh, I think Andrew W.K. got bottles of piss thrown at him and stuff. But but the idea that that in 2010 we identified, okay, 
Uh, fans of the Insane Clown Posse have used this technology to organize themselves. Meanwhile, this this record sales of the group have declined. Uh, how would you gauge, based on the metrics for what you consider to be a successful group, uh, the success of this group? Right. And, and and the sort of surface level idea here is, well, album sales are going to become less important for music acts. And if they want to find revenue, they're going to have to kind of find something else, which in retrospect was entirely correct. Right. Like and and the transformation had somewhat begun in 2010. It has entirely Entirely completed now. I mean, we were at the point where all I want for Christmas was you was like a number one song. People are not buying albums anymore. Right? Like it's just not happening. Uh, not certainly nothing, nothing like what it was. Being on the top of the charts is something very, very different than what it used to be. Um, instead, you know, people have to cultivate online personalities, online fandoms, right? They have to be on the Instagram. They have to be on the the various, uh, you know, the, the TikToks and whatnot. But but even more than that, like the fans, the big music acts need self-organizing fans who uh, motivate, right, continued attention to these particular personalities. We could also say, if we were going to talk about the, the early adopter groups, we could talk about Justin Bieber right alongside the Insane Clown Posse as the sort of really, as I recall, first really, really huge and virulent Twitter fan base uh, and that kind of set the norm for everybody else and how everybody else was going to behave, the the believers and whatnot. Um but I think and so so there's a theory that I posited along with this. Right. And um, the theory or the sort of beginning of a theory is called toward a juggalo theory of value. Uh, it's talking about the labor theory of value. And, and uh, Mark, you know, when I say the labor theory of value, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, basically, like it, it costs like 12 man hours to make this thing. And therefore, uh, it's worth more than something that took only one man hour to make. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a way of looking at economics, and it, it's particularly supported by people who really, really value uh, the worker as the kind of center of the economy. Uh, not necessarily that people who don't support it don't believe that, but it's a it's a it's an idea that supports that 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 I that notion, which is that that surplus value in the economy is created by people working. Right. Uh, and, and this is the idea that, OK, you create surplus value through your labor and profits come from surplus value. Right. Like I my labor is worth ten dollars. I get paid five dollars. Profit is the five dollars that my work was worth that I didn't get. And that accrues to the company. Right. And this is a pretty popular way of looking at profit. And I don't think it's accurate. Um and one of the big reasons why it's not accurate is because when you actually get down to the numbers, uh, there is a lot of other kind of interdependent uh, inputs that go into the price of a good where if you get a deal, you know, you get kind of you get cheaper of a particular good, it can boost your profits. And it's, I think, tough to argue that labor is always the determinant. So, for example, the profitability of an airline might go up or down based on the price of fuel. And it's hard to argue, I, th I would think, that if you watch the price of fuel kind of vary, that uh, the the profit of the airline when the price of fuel is low is a product of the surplus value of the labor of the people who work for the airline, or even necessarily the surplus value of the of the labor of the people who work for the oil company. There's a lot of things that go into the price of things, and so what we're I'm positing here is that uh, that there's sort of a cyclical kind of postmodern idea of like what creates value. Currencies are abstractions. Uh, again, kind of we could talk about Bitcoin in the context of these discussions as a big trend that happened over the course of the decade. That's probably number 252. Um, and and uh, this idea of currencies abstractions, uh, intermediate inputs are a really huge part of the economy now. Okay, if we're thinking about this in terms of cultural inputs, if we want to kind of extend the metaphor, uh, you might have once posited that, okay, 
you know, the the narrative of a sort of a sort of labor theory of the musician would be something like what Bruce Springsteen sings about in Jungle Land, where the kids have the six strings and they're hustling for the rest record machine, right? Like the various bands. Uh, it's this is in Springsteen. It's in Bon Jovi. It's in a lot of the different music that I listened to from New Jersey over the years. I'm sure it's in a lot of other traditions as well. Uh, that that the story of the music industry, to the extent that it is kind of true, is the story of hustling musicians who go out there to prove what they're worth. And if they're really really awesome, they break through and they become big stars. And and this sort of idea that like the the thing that the musician puts into the music, uh, and, and the song, right, the song that they create, and the value of the of the of the recording that they produce, right? Uh, the song that they create that's super special ends up getting a record deal, gets recorded, gets distributed. Everybody likes it. The people gets catal- you know, catapulted up, and suddenly you're talking about rock gods and Elvis and, and uh, you know, all sorts of fancy, you know, it's it's all of a sudden it's, it's you know, tutti frutti, oh, Rudy, and you're more god than man, right? Um, or your jewel, right? <laughs> a jewel of great price, right? Um, but... The idea here with the I don't think anybody could necessarily argue that the success and popularity of the insane clown posse was based upon this kind of ethos, especially the enduring popularity of the insane clown posse through the the present day. And the idea that you can pivot right that 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 in much the same way that an airline could at one point be deriving surplus value primarily from, you know, its workforce, or it might also be deriving surplus value from its fuel costs. Right. Or it might also be experiencing kind of currency exchange stuff. Right. Or there might be kind of a buoying and and a pricing effect that's happening in the economy because of uh, some sort of sticky issue with the valuation of a currency or something like that. Uh, Not devaluation, but like deflation and and the and they get to keep the same pricing or, or there's any number of reasons why the profit of an airline might go up. Um, the Insane Clown Posse represent a different model for how a uh, a music act can kind of achieve cultural cachet. And it's this notion that, that you create juggalos, you invest in juggalos. And in the context of Psychopathic Records and Insane Clown Posse, a juggalo is the specific sort of uh, stereotype is, you know, not necessarily antisocial, but kind of counter-social, uh, where they might be seen as overly abrasive or outcast from a, a kind of uh, pluralistic society. And so they pull inward to their own groups and they, they take on a very strong group identification. Perhaps they put something on their head, right, to designate who they are. Um, and, uh, and then as such, that creates a new kind of power that can support, uh, and a new kind of, kind of der- way to derive surplus value or power that can then be accrued to a musical act that can then sort of be deployed outward. And it's kind of a, a, a an organizing principle, right? Um, and then what I was just saying is that, okay, I think the insane clown posse is wise to invest in juggalos. So you guys are all still with me, right? I've gone on for a little while here, and I've recontextualized some of this stuff, um, but it all still makes sense. Yeah. When when do we get yeah. sprayed with Fago soda? When does that? When does that? <laughs> I mean, did you miss the previous decade? Because that's what happened, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would say it, and I'm not just talking about any one particular instance. I think we all kind of maybe you know see a certain flaming sword that lies in the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017, and we never look back. But that's not the only thing that happened. There are other countries in the world. There are other things that went on. But in general, I would say that writ large, if 
you kind of if you kind of abstract out the notion of specifically what juggalos stand for, right, which is a, a sort of family mentality, uh, right? They ha- there's definitely a kind of identity replacement that goes on. There's this sort of social. There's this sort of specific kind of socialization that happens, uh, and then there is a certain attitude, kind of the expression of violence as a kind of cleansing notion of the reality of violence, which is a kind of re- you could describe it potentially as a kind of recapitulation of trauma, but the notion of the dark carnival, right, is this path to salvation through reveling in violence. Um, you can strip away all of that and think more in terms of kind of the aggression and the identity and the self-organization, uh, and the enthusiasm, as we talked about with Darth Vader. And you could say that there have been a lot of people investing in juggalos all over the world um, and growing these kinds of communities in various sorts of places, uh, in various sorts of orientations, right? Uh, and that in general, over the course of the last 10 years, making juggalos has been a good investment. Uh, I mean, and I mean, and and not all of them would necessarily be, you know, I've I've been dancing around the idea that like a MAGA hat is fate, you know, is is ICP paint by other means. Right. I am an I am in certain circles believed to be an outcast. But when I come among my own people, they recognize me and they see me as family. Right. And I might be uh, adhering to certain sort of notions of kind of violence, destroying the system. Right. Tearing down the people that I see as kind of uh, that, that I see as kind of the targets of my aggression. But I see this as something that's kind of reaffirming and kind of cleansing. Right. Uh, in, you know, whether ethnically or otherwise. Right. Like this place that I care about. Um I mean, it seems like it has certain non-trivial similarities to the Dark Carnival, like the whole political landscape, right? From from you know Modi to Edrigan and back and back around, right? Is is, the, is this sort of Dark Carnival where people are kind of seeking to some sort of way of sort of sublimating and expressing uh, their violent instincts um, among groups of people that are right that are sort of same thinking, right? I was going to say right thinking by their own perspective. Uh, and just and I think in particular, the idea of kind of uh, uh, decentralized, self-organizing partisans um, as as being something that has thrived in the decline of mainstream media environment and the kind of decline of kind of mass uh, redistribution, like sort of reproduction and re- redistribution of kind of individual messages from a from a one to many model as the kind of dominant mode of media to more of a kind of many to many situation. Yeah, I was, about, I was about to say, Pete, like one, one of the interesting things is how sort of quasi hierarchical systems of reward and punishment, right, of of like social policing, you know, can evolve in these highly decentralized communities. And it's not just, you know, it's not just with the MAGA folks. It's not just with juggalos. Like it happens across the political spectrum, um, you know, on, on large and small scales. It mostly happens on Twitter. You know, the, 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 um, it happens in you know quote unquote woke culture whatever that is it happens all, all over but it it is it is amazing how the kind of the the dynamics of mob rule can can come to replicate the outcomes of authoritarianism without an authority figure and if you if you manage to sort of manipulate that to to your own purposes whatever those might be um, it can be an incredibly powerful tool mm-hmm I, I would also, I mean, so, okay, so we wrote toward a juggalo theory of value in 2010, 2017 comes around, right? And there's an interesting, an interesting uh, dialogue happens is one way of putting it, right? Which is that the FBI classifies juggalos as a gang, 
uh, as, as a series of gangs. And you can actually go to the Wikipedia page for all of the different gangs of Juggalos. Now, in general, I have never been to an Insane Pound Posse show. Ryan and I, Overthinker Ryan and I, had had uh, plans to go to one in Worcester once, but we chickened out because uh, we just felt like we couldn't hang. Um, but I, But my gut reaction towards Juggalos is generally positive and sympathetic i I really think that the impulse to try to like find a group where you belong is is really important and and i don't necessarily adhere to the idea right that these are like terrible people that i think or that there's often as or stupid right um which is i think part of why i wrote the article was because of the parodies on snl of the gathering of the juggalos commercials which were mostly about like aren't helicopter rides great and it's like yeah helicopter rides are great right um but all that said, you can look on Wikipedia and look up the Juggalo affiliate gangs, right? And the idea that like, but then what causes a gang to emerge? Well, gangs emerge in places where, you know, institutional authority isn't fulfilling the needs of the community, right? And and it just rises as a proxy, right, uh, for, for institutional authority. Uh, I mean, that's a very oversimplification and, and maybe not something everybody agrees with, but that I, that is my sort of gut reaction to why that sort of thing happens. It's like 911 is a joke in your town, right? Well, guess what? It's not like nobody's going to show up, right? Like if, if you don't take care of things in a town you claim to run, then pretty sure you're not the one running that town, right? Like, um, and uh, and again, that's again an oversimplification uh, uh, along particular sorts of political lines. But but the point stands, which is like I have sympathy in general for the notion of supporting your own community. The FBI has identified a whole bunch of juggalo organizations as gangs. I have really no personal reference for whether this is true or false for any of them in particular. I would imagine it has to be true for some and probably less true for others. And in general, I kind of find the way the government has deployed the definition of gangs to be somewhat reprehensible, especially to the degree which it has uh, mobilized resources that were set aside for terrorism, right, and and deploy them against gangs uh, without kind of considering the uh, constitutional limits that might be placed on dealing with people who are, you know, have rights to be not treated that way. But but the main idea is that the Juggalos marched on Washington, right? The FBI declared in a memo, they had a passed around a memo that identified Juggalos as gangs. The Juggalos organized a march on Washington that made national news to protest their classification. This was in 2017, seven years after the uh, the Juggalo theory of value thing was posted. Like, yes, people still go to Sting concerts. There are still deadheads around. But the idea that the fans of the Insane Clown Posse would maintain this kind of degree of capital and organization over this long period of time seems to me to be notable. Uh, I mean, I don't know if Sting's announced that he was going to march on Washington, how many people would go with him? Probably a bunch. I don't know. But like, you know, if like Moxie Fruvis decided they were going to get together again and uh, and go like take on the Supreme not, Court, I don't know who not, would. Uh... Not super possible. John, <laughs> Are they John, dead? Yeah, no. John, John Gomeshi got me too pretty hard. Oh, I mean, I have no idea. He, right? he did some, he did some really regrettable things that were illegal. <laughs> That is probably true of many Juggalos as well. Um, so, so I guess. So, uh, okay. Well, we'll do our Moxie Fruvis retrospective another time because I don't actually know anything about them other than that they had really enthusiastic fans who I assume, based on what you said, feel deeply betrayed by what took place. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, um, so, so, yes, the Juggalos are this, like, you know, fantastic lens with which to view the last decade. And I'm going to just add one other thing that kind of takes it over the top, which is that um, apparently Juggalo face makeup in the style of the insane clown posse is known to confound facial recognition algorithms. <laughs> so that's your pro tip for surviving 
in the next decade of mass surveillance. <laughs> You're welcome. Man, I don't know. Are we crazy or is this what's actually happening in the world? That's sort of part of I kind of wonder <laughs> sometimes I just pick the narrative that's the most interesting. <laughs> Um, I also feel like I should not have talked and written so much about Juggalos without talking to any of them, which I, I consider to be a gross oversight on my part. So if you are a Juggalo or are Juggalo adjacent and wish to weigh in on the comments of this podcast on overthinking it and let us know what you consider. Or, if you know, I believe Jug- I don't know if Juggalette is still a term of currency or whether they've developed a kind of more nuanced view of gender, as so many have over the course of the subsequent or the previous decade. I'm not sure. Um, I also don't know how magnets work. Which is another thing. So if you know how magnets work, <laughs> by the way, that song got a total bum rap, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I will take them because because the magnet sound by a song, which I think might have come out in uh, if it was in 2010 or in 20, 2009, that song got a bum rap because I can totally see what that song is about. Right? It's the idea that as you confront the world, things that seem incomprehensible fill you with a sense of wonder. Right. Like that in and of itself is not a bad message, nor a particularly incorrect one, although it is very funny to kind of speculate. And also you can even pair that with another video that I that I posted that I talked about on uh, this very podcast, which is there's a a great video. I I forget what episode it was, but we talked about um, Feynman. Right. And we talked about Feynman talking about magnets. There's a great interview with of, uh, of Richard Feynman. Uh, being asked, what is magnetism, right? Like, explain why magnets work, right? And his answer is like, well, I can't explain to you why they work. They're magnets, right? I can explain to you what's what's sort of observable about them, but but a narrative that I created about kind of why a magnet is a magnet wouldn't really be, that's not scientific. That's not a consideration of the world, uh, right? It's like, uh, you know, I could call one he doesn't say I can call one pole north and one pole south, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just something we've put onto it. But he can say, like, all it means is that we know that there's a magnetic force and it attracts and it repulses. And this idea that, yes, you can go into detail about electromagnetic fields and electrons and valence shells and kind of electron seas in metals and kind of how that all works. But the idea that you really have arrived through this sort of empirical observation at a transcendent understanding of magnets that makes shaggy two dopes claim at a lack of knowledge in the face of the universe utterly absurd. I don't think that science has achieved that. And I don't think that science would necessarily claim that it has achieved it. So I would just think I just wish that Richard Feynman were still around so that he and shaggy two dope could hang out. I'm sure shaggy two dope has also done terrible things. And that and I don't know. I, I don't know that at all. I don't know whether they do good things or bad things. I don't know anything. Um, all I know is that uh, that that uh, all I know is that if you wear a face paint and call yourself a juggalo, you've probably got a lot of friends out there somewhere because you put the work in uh, and you built those groups. So that's there a, you go. That's good. I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe in the next uh, maybe in the next uh, decade, science will be able to science will be able to answer the question about <laughs> about why magnets work. I, I believe that the answer begins long ago in the before time. The sky god decreed, and that will uh, it will just it will just go on from there. All right, the number one pop culture moment of the past decade happened this year. It is the television adaptation, the television presentation of Rent Live on January 27, <laughs> 2019. Uh, Rent Live, starring Vanessa Hudgens, Jordan Fisher, and others. Pete, how are we going to pay? How are we going to pay? How are we going to pay last year's rent? This year's rent? 
next year's rent, <laughs> rent, 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 rent. Because everything is rent. Well, there is a film that answers that question, <laughs> and that film is Magic Mike Double XL. Actually, <laughs> oh dear. I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, Rent Live is a good encapsulation of the decade. Um, a because uh, we've seen this kind of uh, a true ascendancy of rent-seeking capitalism, and B because Rent Live was not live at all. It was mostly a lie. <laughs> so check and check. Uh, Although it's also a thing where people screwed up, but they still did it, right? Not everything went right, but they still got it done. It's just something else that happened this decade, more or less. Um, uh, man, I don't know. Matt, can I can I throw in one tiny last uh, bit, of, bit of article knowledge? Uh, please before do. Before we peace out. So I wrote an article in 2011 called Fenzel on Dragon Ball V, The Passage of Time. And, and I just want to say that in this article, I contrast Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball with Sex in the City. And I talk about how in Dragon Ball, you get the sense that time passes. And in Sex in the City, you don't get the time, sense that time passes. And the reason for this is in, is in uh, Sex in the City, the relationships that the characters undergo get compressed into conversations uh, about a particular issue that in a real life relationship would be repeated many, many times. Right. Um, whether, you know, it's I think I talk about is it Aiden or uh, yeah, Aiden and Carrie's fight would be something that in a real relationship would be repeated many times and would not just decide the outcome of their relationship on one 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 uh, instance. Whereas in Dragon Ball, things happen many, many times. And uh, and I posit a couple of things that I that I conjecture cause a feeling that time is progressing. Uh, and I think they're relevant to where we are in the podcast right now. Uh, the first is that repetition is important. The second is that recurrence matters more than measurement, right? Uh, so if we were just to say, you know, this is the 600th episode of the Overthinking It podcast, that matters less than saying, uh, than saying welcome to the Overthinking It podcast 600 times, right? Another is that what recurs matters, uh, which means that there are certain things that recur in this podcast that can tell you about what is happening as time passes and make you feel that time is passing. And the fourth is that what changes matters, right? Because if certain things stay the same over time and certain things change, that gives you a benchmark for feeling the passage of time as it happens. And the fifth is that uh, it doesn't come free, which I guess also relays to what Matt said about putting in the work. So on that note, uh, Matt, do you want to bring us to a sense of the passage of time through creating a repetition and recurrence that has both changed and stayed the same over the years so that we've all experienced together uh, every week uh, since we started this crazy dance? Yeah, absolutely. I will. And that's a, that, that is obviously my weekly plea for people to become members of overthinking. <laughs> we're very, we're very glad uh, that uh, many among, many among the number of our listeners consider us supporting with a, uh, consider us worth supporting with a, a monthly uh, contribution of, of five bucks. Um, the five bucks gets you access to a lot of overthinking at digital goods for free, like the overview and uh, the book club on 1984 that we did that would cost 10 bucks. Otherwise the other, uh, uh, the other thing you get is a, uh, is a podcast 
podcast series called The Question of the Week. We moved the uh, Question of the Week, which used to take up two-thirds to four-fifths of the episode with uh, to a uh, members-only feature. This week, we recorded a special Question of the Week before we recorded this podcast on our New Year's resolutions for 2020, both pop culture and non-pop culture related, which is where my uh, observations about doing the work uh, come from. I was I was chided by a spin instructor, and uh, it set the tone for my my whole 2020. And if you want to hear about that, join Overthinking It um, in the digital library. Head to overthinkingit.com slash join or click the link that's at the top of the show notes in, in your uh, podcast app for this episode. We thank very, very much the people who, uh, who support us, who keep the lights on around here, and who uh, consider what we do worth supporting. It's, uh, it is particularly gratifying to have that support after, you know, what... Well, nearly uh, 11 years and change and uh, and 600 episodes of doing this podcast together, uh, a podcast that will come back next week. Uh, but until then, please check us out on overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Thank <laughs> you.